Welcome once again to Gospel Doctrine. I'm your host, Mark Holt. And today's lesson is Living Righteously in a Wicked World. It's lesson number eight in your LDS Gospel Doctrine Manual. And to begin our podcast today, we have an email from Shane in Seattle who says, I currently teach Gospel Doctrine in my ward and totally agree with everything you have said. We are poor teachers and poor students of the Bible and Gospel. Now, in all fairness, I didn't say exactly that, but I did say several weeks ago that we as LDS students of the Bible are not up to the standard of mainstream Christianity, evangelical Christians. All these people learn their Bible so much better than we do. And I, one of my goals for this podcast is to have us treat it like a scholastic subject, an intellectual subject, rather than something that Sunday school, something that we avoid. Shane continues, I'm trying to be better. It takes me a full week of one to two hours of study every day to even be ready for Sunday. I listen to the podcast driving to work. I think it is so important to understand the Hebrew side of the Bible and how much symbols, parallelism, and wordplay is used. Thanks for listening, Shane. We appreciate your input, and we ask anyone else who has any questions or comments, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Give me your first name and city, and I will read your comment on the air. Also, if you'd like to help new listeners find their way to us, please share our weekly Facebook posts at facebook.com slash gospeltoctrine, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. I also have a quote to begin our podcast today. This quote comes from Jordan Peterson. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, and he says, Perhaps happiness is always to be found in the journey uphill and not in the fleeting sense of satisfaction awaiting at the next peak. And I'm hoping that will resonate with a lot of my Utah listeners who love hiking. So many people around here love hiking, and the greatest part of hiking is often the climb. And we are climbing the whole time thinking about looking at that peak and looking down from the peak. And the truth is, the entire hike, if you if that's the way you think, you miss the whole hike. So that's a wonderful quote from Jordan Peterson. If this is your first time listening to Gospel Doctrine, every week I try to give my take on the next week's Gospel Doctrine lesson. The lesson we'll be covering today is Living Righteously in a Wicked World, lesson number eight. And as a broad stroke of the narrative of this lesson, it is the story of Abraham after he arrives in the Promised Land. So if you remember last week, we covered the Abrahamic Covenant, which began all the way in Ur, his his place of origin, his city of origin, through the city of Haran, where he received the bulk of what would later be known as the Abrahamic Covenant and into the promised land. So in this lesson, he arrives. And the broad strokes or the events of this lesson are that Abraham arrives in the promised land with his son-in-law, Lot. And for a brief time, they live together, but then pretty soon it becomes obvious that their people can't live together. There's just not quite enough land. They're bumping up against each other. And Lot chooses to go one way. Abraham chooses to go his. And then the Lord reaffirms his promise to Abraham, number one, Look to the north, look to the west, look to the south. Everything you see is promised to you for an everlasting inheritance. And then he promises Abraham, and this is interesting because Abraham is already, I think, 86 at this point, or in his 80s. Uh, Actually, he's 86 when Ishmael is born. So he's 80 years old or more, and God promises him, he says, pick up the dust of the earth, Uh, you, you will have posterity, If you could number the dust of the earth, that would be the number of your posterity. So he reaffirms the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is also the point at which Abraham is is renamed to Abraham. Before that, he was known as Abram. But as I said last week, rather than make that change, I just decided to refer to him as Abraham the whole time. So his name is changed to father of a multitude. And Sarai, which is how... She was known, his wife was known early in her life. Her name is changed to Sarah, meaning princess. So they both receive these royal titles. And the Lord affirms his covenant with Sarah as the equal of the covenant to to Abraham. Meaning two things. Number one, she's his equal in every way. And number two, that it would be the lineage through Sarah that would be the covenant lineage. And as we find out in this lesson, because she's so old, Sarah is also in her 80s and and the Lord returns to Abraham later in his life and says, I really meant it. Sarah really is going to have a child. And at this point, Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 90. And as it says very tactfully in the Bible, it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. And 
So obviously at 90 years old, she didn't think there was much hope of having a child, but they do have a child. They have a child named Isaac. But earlier than that, Sarah, out of a broken heart for her husband and out of a kindness that she felt, and according to the custom of the time, offered to Abraham her handmaid as his wife that would bear children, quote unquote, unto her. So she would be the she would receive the honor for those children even though they were born by another it didn't quite turn out that way and there was some bitterness between them as you might expect but between hagar who was the handmaid and sarah abraham fathers two sons ishmael and isaac and meanwhile lot has separated from him and is living in the plain the fertile valley between present day israel and jordan So if you look at a topographical map of that area, you'll see there's this big flat plain and it's fed from the Sea of Galilee by the Jordan River flowing southward. And today we see the Dead Sea there, the Salt Sea, and it's a lush valley that to this day, it grows bananas, grows all kinds of crops for the nation of Israel. And the Jordanians grow many water intensive crops there as well. So it's a wonderful place for agriculture and as dry as the Holy Land, what we call the Holy Land is, all of these countries are constantly in, in need of rainfall. This valley was the choicest of places to live. And Abraham was living over the range of hills directly to the west of it, and in a much drier climate, a much higher climate, and a more hilly climate. So there wasn't any water flowing directly to him. He chose the less desirable plot of land. And we'll talk about why he did that and what it says about Abraham. But Lot fell in among the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that were renowned for their wickedness. And eventually they were so wicked that the Lord decided to destroy them. And we have an account of Abraham meeting with angels of the Lord on the way to do that. And what they say to him is, number one, they, they make the promise. This is when Abraham receives the promise that you're 99 and we know you already have a child, Ishmael. But in one year, when we come back, Sarah will have a son. And Sarah laughs to herself, and the angel of the Lord says to her, uh, you know, even though you laugh, it will still happen. She denies she laughs, she's embarrassed, but he says, no, we know you did, you laughed about it, and even though you did, we promise. And it says in the scripture that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And as the angels of the Lord are leaving Abraham's presence, he has an interesting conversation, a back and forth, and he's they tell him, they say, first of all, the angel says to himself, am I, not, am I going to do this thing, go destroy Sodom and not tell Abraham? Because I know Abraham is such a righteous man. And this calls to mind, in my mind, the verse in Amos, Amos 3, 7, where Amos says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, save he shall reveal his secret to his servants, the prophets. So this is an example of that very thing. The, God, the angel is about to do the will of God, and he's going to reveal the secret to Abraham. And Abraham has a chance now to plead for the lives of those in Sodom. And he knows how wicked they are. He's been there before. But he says, hey, if there are some righteous people there, will you spare it? And the angel says, yes. If there's 50 righteous, will you spare it? Yes. And Abraham keeps going down, and he gets a little bit more embarrassed each time. Until finally he asks, okay, what about if there's only 10 people, will you spare the city of Sodom? And the angel says, yes, if there are 10 people there that are righteous, we will spare the city. And the next thing you know, Lot has to leave the city with his wife and two daughters, and not even his sons-in-law will go with him. They are too wicked. So turns out the magic number was four that Abraham should have asked for because there were exactly four righteous people and and the angels aid Lot in escaping. And then we have a famous passage where They whisk them out onto the nearby plain and say to them, run for the hills and don't look back. And Lot's wife turns around, looks back, and is turned to a pillar of salt. So we'll discuss that passage. And then finally, at the end of our lesson, Abraham's son, the son of the covenant, Isaac, is born. And next week, we have a fascinating episode, one of the most inspiring events in all of Scripture, which is the testing of Abraham. And there are some other events In these chapters that you could read, that you could cover, Abraham and Sarah actually go for a time and live in Egypt, during which time Sarah, because she's such a renowned beauty, attracts the gaze of everyone from the border control all the way up to the Pharaoh. And Abraham tells everyone that Sarah is his sister in order to avoid being killed, which is an interesting thing. And if you choose to cover that, you can talk about how uh, Abraham is actually Sarah's uncle. And when his brother, her father, was killed then Abraham's father adopted her. 
And so in that sense, they were actually brother and sister. Uh, a lot of people say, well, the Lord commanded Abraham to lie. And in one sense, it's kind of true. The Lord commanded Abraham to emphasize that portion of the truth and omit the part where he was her husband in order to save his life. And in general, God commands us not to lie, but that is something you can choose to discuss. We won't go into it very much. But in Egypt, we believe, is where most of the book of Abraham was revealed to Abraham, and that is where the papyri were discovered, which later fell into the hands of Joseph Smith, and from which he received the revelation, which became the book of Abraham. So Abraham spent some time in Egypt. We don't know exactly how much time. But we know that there are many writings from the land of Egypt which bear a striking resemblance to the modern-day LDS gospel. And so it's possible that Abraham taught there for years and made more converts. As we discussed last week, one of the ways in which Abraham was a prince of peace, the main way in which Abraham was a prince of peace, which is one of his desires to become a prince of peace, was by doing missionary work, by teaching the gospel to people. And instead of having a kingdom of this world, what he had were followers who wanted to come to him for the truth, much like Melchizedek, Abraham's teacher, built the city of Salem, the city of peace, out of gathering all of the followers of Christ into one place and teaching them and raising their level of righteousness. And that's how he became a prince of peace. So Abraham would have continued to do that. And perhaps when he and Sarah left Egypt and to return to the land of Canaan, they left some people behind who didn't quite have enough faith to follow him. But whatever the reason, there are similarities in the ancient Egyptian religion and certain aspects of it. And for more on this, you can write me an email. I'll send you some information about it. Or you can read Hugh Nibley. He's constantly talking about the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead and other texts that are sacred to the Egyptians and the similarities that exist between those and the gospel. But at the end of our story, for this week, we find the prophet Abraham again living in Canaan, raising his newborn son Isaac to be the child of the covenant. And the point of the lesson is exactly what the title says. Abraham is a righteous man, and he lives surrounded by wickedness, wickedness so great that the practitioners of it had to be physically destroyed by God. And how did he do it? Why is it important? And what do we learn from it? Now, as I explain the events in the scriptures of this lesson earlier, the first thing that happens is that Abraham and Lot settle together and then discover that there are just too many of them. And Abraham was, in fact, a very powerful, very wealthy man because of all the converts he'd made in Haran. And Lot had his own followers as well, so we can presume he was doing the same thing, trying, he had the same desires that Abraham had. He wanted to become a prince of peace, and therefore he was teaching the gospel. He was doing missionary work and bringing converts, and they followed him. So they both became very wealthy and powerful men, not because they needed the wealth, but because they had a large stewardship. They had a lot of people to feed. They had a lot of people to teach. They had a great responsibility, and God had blessed them accordingly. And the way in which they divide is kind of interesting. First, we have a description of their servants quarreling. And what we can infer from that is that the quarters were too cramped. And Abraham says to Lot, Abraham was the more important of the two. He was the patriarch. He was the leader. And instead of saying to Lot, all right, well, I've decided I'm going to go down into this fertile valley between Israel and Jordan. He wouldn't have called it those names. I'm going to go down to the fertile valley here where there's a river, plenty of water, and you can stay up here. Or he could have also said, I'm going to settle on one side of the river, you settle on the other. Or I'm going to take the northern part, you take the southern part, and we'll both have some good land and some bad. What he said to Lot was, you choose. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And Lot said to himself, well, I'm going to go down to this fertile valley. So see you later, Abraham. I'm going to take all the best land for myself. And Abraham let him do it. And we don't know much more about it. We don't know what the Lord was telling Abraham, whether that he prompted Abraham to make that choice or whether Abraham was just trying to be kind and that was his idea. But for whatever reason, when Abraham said that and Lot went down and possessed the Jordan Valley, then Abraham received another visit from God in which his promises were reaffirmed. And this was the will of God all along for Abraham to receive this land as an everlasting inheritance. So he was greatly blessed because of that choice. What did Lot find down in the valley? 
He lived close to the city of Sodom. And in fact, the scripture gives us an interesting turn of phrase. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. And that's a phrase that, if you read the lesson in the manual, makes repeated mention of. What does it mean for Lot to pitch his tent toward Sodom? This is a great question. First of all, why would somebody with Lot's pedigree, one of the descendants of what Abraham called the fathers, somebody with the right to the priesthood, why would he do this? How did he do it? What did it cost him to live in this land of abundance? And we actually have an interesting parallel from our day when the saints were trekking west and decided to settle in Utah, there were those who wanted to continue to California. And Brigham Young at the time said, if we should continue to California, and I'm the, I know I have listeners in California, I'm not saying California is a place of wickedness. I mean, every place is a place of wickedness these days, if you look for it. But what he said was, if we were to go to where there's material comfort, it would cost us our spiritual future. That was the paraphrase of what he said. And Abraham found that same thing to be true. Rather than go down into this fertile Jordan Valley, he stayed up in a place that has a climate actually kind of similar to that of Utah. And it's drier, it's higher in the mountains, and harder to farm in, possible, but harder. And because he did that, Abraham began living a life where he depended on God. And Lot began living a life where he had a guaranteed source of water. And as I say almost every week, Satan's plan is a plan of guarantees. That doesn't mean that he shouldn't, if if you're a farmer and you have a chance of guaranteed water, you shouldn't take it. But it's just interesting that we can draw that parallel. And the longer Lot lived in this valley, the closer he got to Sodom until the point came when he was actually living inside the city of Sodom. Now, why did Lot do this? Lot was a holy man. At least he'd been trying. He was a leader, a great leader of many, been blessed by the Lord. And when he went into Sodom, over what we can assume are degrees, he first pitched his tent toward Sodom and then ended up living there. His daughters ended up marrying men who weren't believers. In fact, one of the passages in this lesson describes the episode that occurs when the angels come to rescue Lot and his family. And Lot goes to his sons-in-law and says, we got to get out of here. This place is going to be destroyed. And they look at him and they see Lot as, quote, one who mocks and they don't listen to him. So his daughters ended up marrying the wrong kind of guys, men who didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the gospel, and certainly didn't respect Lot, nor did any of his other neighbors respect him. The neighbors saw these angels come in and they actually surround and lay siege to Lot's home, saying, using language, saying basically, send these men out, we're going to mistreat them in very disgusting ways. And if you read that passage, it's quite disturbing. It actually says that Lot sends out his daughters instead. And the Joseph Smith translation has, differs with that. It says that he, he does just the opposite. But whatever the case, his neighbors didn't really care for Lot's beliefs to the point where they were willing to violently assault him and probably eventually kill him and his family. So they hated him, and yet he was willing to live there. And this is, these two men, Abraham and Lot, were perfect examples of the ways that we can approach the world. Of the two, we actually have reason to believe that Abraham was the wealthier one, which is interesting because uh, Jesus said in the New Testament that the love of money was the root of all evil. And I hear this phrase, I hear this scriptural quotation used a lot to justify the idea that God hates the his followers gaining material wealth. That is a misreading, by the way, of what that scripture means. I've, I've often wondered about that because it's not the kind of thing that Jesus would say. It's so obviously not true. The love of money is not the root of all evil. There are plenty of people who don't care about money and are evil nonetheless. And so what does it mean? Well, it means that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if you look at the Greek of that verse, you'll, you'll realize that that's true. The love of money can be the root of any kind of evil. In other words, that's another way to render it into English. But it doesn't have to be the root of every evil that comes along. It can be the root of every kind of evil. 
And if you think about the goals that God has for us, what God wants to give us is, or what God gave Christ is the ability to go to where there's matter unorganized, organize it into a world. Now, if you think of all of the elements, all of the substance that this world contains, it contains tons and tons and millions of tons of gold and precious metal of every kind, uranium, every ore you can think of and every substance that could be refined, organic matter and it, and water and everything that has been considered wealth over the centuries and millennia of human existence. Christ was in possession of all of that. Not only that, but Christ has more followers than any king ever had. So all of these things were given into Christ's hand by God, and that's what God wants to give us. God wants to give us not only the riches of eternal life, but physical wealth. He wants to trust us with all of those things. And what is wealth today but the control of material goods and the ability to direct the labor of others? If you think about it, that's what wealth is. Who are the richest people in the world and what do they have? They have the ability to use their either their money or their power to pay other people or to direct other people to do work for them. And then they have either the raw materials or the manufactured goods to give those people something to do. Well, the amount of wealth that God wants to bless us with and the amount of wealth that we can get on our own are not even comparable. God wants to give us an infinity of not only spiritual wealth, but material wealth. But before he can do it, he needs to know about us what he knew about Abraham. And if you're wondering what that is, all you have to do is read Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, or 17. We'll start in verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, meaning the destruction of Sodom, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So, in other words, God knew that Abraham was a covenant keeper. And not only him, but he knew that all who followed Abraham would be covenant keepers. If God knows that about us, he can bless us. And because he knew that about Abraham, he was able to give him great abundance of wealth, even in a barren land. Whereas the, what God could do for Lot was, in the end, simply remove him from the city of Sodom. And then, as it says in the book of Genesis, he rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed the city. And Lot came out of there with absolutely nothing, wasn't able to go back, wasn't able to bring anything with him, and was destitute with only his two daughters, lost his wife as well. The story of their departure was that there were only four of them. God had promised Abraham, if there are ten righteous people, then we'll spare the city. But it's Lot, his wife, and their two daughters. And so the angel, instead of saving the city, whisks them away and puts them on the plane and says, run for it. And then it says, and this is in Genesis 19, 26, Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. And... It's just an interesting verse to think about. It doesn't matter a whole lot what it means, but a lot of people over the years have given their opinions on it. So this is a fun opportunity for us to do another exercise on BibleHub.com. And I talked about this. I can't remember whether it was week one or week two, but I talked about BibleHub.com being a wonderful resource. So let's go through another exercise on BibleHub.com. So if you open that page in your browser and you can pause the podcast, go get in front of your computer. And first thing you want to do is along the top, you choose the chapter. So Genesis, choose chapter 19, and then it'll refresh, and then you can choose verse 26. So we're in Genesis 19:26. Now on this page, you can read a bunch of interpretations, what pe- people's ideas are about what this verse actually means. So we have different ideas, you know, were she overtaken by fumes? and slowly became a pillar of salt because she was encrusted with salt fumes or salt liquid. And then you can click on Hebrew, and there you'll see, if you click on that Hebrew, you'll see on the right side the English version of the literal translation of the Hebrew. The Hebrew is right in the middle, and then the romanization of the Hebrew on the left. And one way to look at Hebrew words is to click on the romanization there. Well, it turns out if you click on salt, you figure out that that word just means salt. There's not a lot of room there. If you click on pillar, that has a couple of meanings, but this one is clearly pillar. 
But if you click on became, then you find out that became. So a lot of people think this verse means that she turned around and instantly was turned into salt. And I think it, if we use a little imagination, we can come up with a better explanation than that. And it turns out that became has a lot of meanings. And one of them is ended up. So instead of, you know, was, was instantly turned into a pillar of salt. One way to read this verse is uh, that she looked behind her and then ended up a pillar of salt. And we know this is a real account because Jesus actually made reference to Lot's wife. In Luke chapter 17, verse 32, he's around this verse, he's telling the story or he's given the prophecy of what's going to happen in the last days. And, and the verse actually, the passage actually has two fulfillments. One in the first century AD when the Romans destroy the nation of Israel. And two around the time of the second coming. And he says, if you're on the rooftop, don't even wait long enough to go down into the house and collect your things. If you're out in the fields, don't return to town to get anything. Just run for it. And so, and then he says, remember Lot's wife. And so this is a spiritual lesson. It means, and I, I don't think that literally, I don't think it'd be possible really to be running across a plane and not glance back. I mean, maybe you're looking to the side and the penalty for making a mistake and glancing back is being turned instantly into a pillar of salt. That doesn't seem like the way God works. What I think actually happened is they're running away. Lot's wife is having tons of second thoughts and she thinks to herself, you know what, maybe I left something there and and that's the surface thought, that's the excuse, but really she just, she doesn't really think it's going to happen. She doesn't believe the angels and she prefers life. They've pinched their tent towards Sodom for so long that to her, she doesn't want to leave. She wants to actually see the armies approaching or the fire and brimstone raining down from heaven. We don't know. We actually don't know what form that took. It it doesn't seem like an, a normal meteorological phenomenon that anyone's ever heard of. So if God destroyed them that way, literally, then it would be something that we haven't seen any time before or since. And maybe that fire and brimstone was metaphorical. Maybe he destroyed them with an invading army. So if it was, she wanted to see the invading army before she'd be willing to actually leave the land of Sodom. So what I think happened is she turned and looked around and started having second thoughts and then just left. And Lot, what did, what could he do? Can't drag her. He has to run. He was told to run. He can't turn around either. The angel said, don't look back. So he had to let her go. And she returns back to the city of Sodom and either intends to go there for a short time or intends to go back and live there. But in any case, she ends up dead. And was it because the invading armies caught up with her or was it because the Sodomites killed her or was it for some other reason? But where Lot lived was real close to the Dead Sea. And so if she's buried in this area, one very plausible explanation is she's buried in this salty soil near the Dead Sea. Another is that the shape of the Dead Sea actually changed after the conquest and her burial place was under the Dead Sea. In any case, we know for a fact that this is a valuable object lesson because Jesus used it as one. Remember Lot's wife. When you are called to come out of Sodom and told not to look back, then looking back is an extremely bad idea. Now, what is Sodom? It might be, in your case, it might be an addiction that you have. Or it might be a person that you need to get away from. It might be a habit. It might be a location. It might be a state of mind. It might be anything that you're called to come away from. And that calling could take the, the form of a blessing, a, a priesthood blessing, or a prompting. Or it could take the form of a wake-up call of, of another sort where you hit rock bottom. But in any case, if you are called to come out of Sodom and you look back, then, as Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. You don't want to become a pillar of salt. You don't want your burial place to be in the salty ground that surrounds the city of Sodom. You want to end up, as Lot did, rejoining the family of Abraham. So on the one hand, Abraham prioritized God, prioritized spiritual things, and was a covenant keeper, and was richly blessed the entire time, and at the end was wealthier than he'd been at the beginning. And on the other hand, Lot chose the more comfortable path, ended up living a very permissive lifestyle where he was 
just fine mixing with people who were terrible, terrible influences and hated him and ended up losing everything. It seems like a pretty simple choice if you were looking out on a fertile valley on one hand and on a rugged mountainous terrain on the other that's dry and to say, yes, I'm going to raise crops, I'm going to raise flocks, I would much rather have the fertile valley. But let's imagine that Lot also knew that down in that valley was the city of Sodom. So he wants the fertile valley and he's willing to put up with Sodom. And Abraham, perhaps he knew what Lot was going to choose. And he wanted the mountains. He wanted to be away from Sodom no matter what it cost him. And in the end, it didn't cost him anything. It was a tremendous blessing to him, both spiritually and temporally. Now, I'm sure you can think of in your life, and if you're going to be teaching this lesson, this is one of the reasons this won't be our longest podcast today, is because I want to leave plenty of room for you to have a discussion in your class. This, this should be a very lively and rich discussion where you talk about in what ways do we choose the fertile valley and what does the city of Sodom look like in our lifetimes. Now, I think there's something I should address at this point, and that is a lot of people associate Sodom and Gomorrah with homosexuality. And in the church, this is sometimes a very sensitive topic. Always, I should say it's always a very sensitive topic. It's a sensitive topic among most people. And I think it's very important that you remember that your job as a teacher is not to offend those that you teach by teaching your opinions. Now, if you're teaching the truth and people take offense, that's one thing. And it's certainly true that God has condemned the practice of homosexuality. But it's your opinion that that particular sin needs to be condemned by you particularly and worse than another sin at this particular time. And it's impossible for you to know there might be somebody in in your class who has come to church is struggling with this very thing. And there are a lot of people in our church who struggle. And then they think to themselves, if only I didn't have same-sex attraction, for example, then my life would be so much easier. And I'd be able to live the gospel more fully and more easily. I'd be able to have all of the blessings of the gospel. And the way things are right now, I don't see how that's possible. And they've come to church hoping for a little understanding and just to hear the good word and feel the spirit. I really think it's important to remember that while you're teaching this lesson and not go off on a tangent. And if somebody brings that up, try not to allow the lesson to go too far afield in that direction. Now, on the other hand, you as a student, if you're a student in a gospel doctrine class, you also have a duty, and that is the duty not to be offended. And we've all been in a class where the teacher is saying something that is maybe a little bit self-righteous, maybe a little bit off base, or maybe even false doctrine, And we feel like we have to either correct him, argue with him, or debate. And I don't think that's appropriate almost ever. I do think it's appropriate if something, if the Spirit moves you to state your opinion, to state your, even your difference, and to state it briefly and kindly. You want to state it in such a way that afterwards you, you will never look back and say, I really regret saying what I said or in the way that I said it. And this is something that I've learned by listening to one of my favorite talk radio hosts, Dennis Prager. And he, this is a quote from him. He always says, clarity is more important than agreement. In other words, all you need to do is understand and you don't have to force other people to agree and you've done enough. And knowing that, realizing that, learning that has helped my life so much. I'm a person who for a long time, I would get into political discussions on Facebook, and I don't recommend this. And I would write something in the morning and then it would distract me all day. I'd have to check back in. Has anybody contradicted what I said? And who do I have to argue with and prove wrong? And again, I'm not telling you to not write anything political on Facebook, but I'm telling you a story about me. So I wrote this, I I would write a post and then I would argue with people and spend way too much of my attention on this kind of thing. And then I started hearing Dennis Prager say, clarity is more important than agreement. And somebody would call in that disagreed with him, and he would say, okay, tell me what you think about this. Tell me what you think about that. Okay, there's where we disagree. I just found it. This is the one thing that all of our, this is the core place where we can't go any farther than that. Beyond that, it's irreconcilable. You believe this, I believe this. And they'd say, thanks for your call. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. He didn't try to convince that person. And the point is, you're never going to convince anyone. 
Somebody who disagrees with you disagrees with you for their own reasons. So don't your job is not to convince someone. Your job is to discover where you disagree and do it in a way that's respectful. So if you're a student and you disagree, then perhaps you do want to state your opinion in Sunday school and perhaps it is appropriate, but do it briefly. You're not going to convince the teacher and, and don't have it as your goal to have somebody stop talking and say, you know what? You're right. Everything I've been saying is absolutely wrong and I'm going to leave this topic and never bring it up again. Thank you so much for being here. You're the smartest person I know. It, th- those kind of things just don't happen. If you say something like, oh, I, I think that you seem to think this, I think this, that isn't that interesting. And you've done it kindly. You've been clear and that's important. You're clear and you're kind. Then somebody else listening can make their own choice. And you actually, you don't have to do it more than once. You don't have to keep trying. Even if that person goes off on their tangent or, or does whatever. If somebody is talking about something that you think is inappropriate or doing it in an inappropriate way, you maybe even feel like you have to leave the room which you shouldn't do in a huff, but and I think that might be appropriate, but to keep talking about something that causes contention is not appropriate. So remember when you're discussing these sensitive topics that it's not your job to convince everyone of your point of view, but to teach the truth and the doctrine as best you can and use the Spirit to know which parts to emphasize. Now, there are exceptions to this. There might be times when someone's life is in danger, for example, and and a mob is converging on a jail to take someone out and, and kill them because they, they can't wait for justice to come fast enough. And you might choose to stand up, and in that moment, that would take great courage to say, no, we can't, we can't be judge, jury, and executioner. The law has to govern in this matter, and we can't take the law into our own hands. That would be an example of courage. But so often, and this happens to everyone, I've done this myself plenty of times, so often we mistake self-righteousness for courage. We think, because I feel so strongly about this, then it would be courageous of me to state my opinion forcefully and even rudely because I know that I'm right. So if you ever find yourself in a position where you really feel like you have to state your opinion loud, more loudly than anyone else, just ask yourself that question, am I mistaking self-righteousness for courage? Courage is something that usually happens when you're alone. If everyone around you agrees with you and you are ganging up on someone and wanting to make them feel stupid for having an opinion you disagree with, I would submit humbly that you're not showing courage, you're showing self-righteousness. And just because you're alone and you are expressing an unpopular opinion, that also doesn't mean you're showing courage. It might mean that you relish being alone and you're what to use a modern word, you're doing what's called trolling. You're trying to make people upset because you don't like their opinion. And there's always room in the gospel for respect and for kindness and love. And that is what is going to change people's minds or change your, it may, it may be you that has to change your mind. We never know. Or I should say we often don't know. Something else that is interesting to learn about this passage A lot of people assume that the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah were destroyed because their citizens were practicing homosexuality. But actually, if you read in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, you'll read, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty, and committed abomination before me, therefore I took them away as I saw good. So yes, the people of Sodom are committing abominations, but the sin that God mentions first is the sin of pride. And there's another interesting concept in these verses in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is the concept of a sin of society instead of a sin of an individual. Now there are a lot of sins that individuals can commit, but this, and this is my own idea, and I, and I think it's an interesting one. I think about it all the time. There are also sins that no person can commit alone. Society as a whole has to commit them. And in the gospel, we often find this idea that when a society is truly righteous, there are no poor among them. And when they're truly wicked or when they are a wicked society, the sins of the society are neglecting the poor and the needy. 
And that sin seems to be the sin of pride and the sin of neglecting the poor and the needy seem to be the societal sins that were great enough to induce the Lord to destroy the city of Sodom. Now, as these angels are heading towards Sodom to destroy it, they say, and we can read this in Genesis 18, uh, let's see, verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. So the angels are going to investigate. They hear this cry. And what is the cry? Well, in Moses chapter 7, we can remember the vision of Enoch when he saw the earth crying out because of all the iniquities that were being committed on its face. And Enoch felt that suffering, the suffering of the earth, so keenly that he prayed continuously over and over again, even though he's in the midst of a vision. And even though he sees the vision of the time of Christ, he keeps praying, Lord, when will the earth rest? And so that, it seems to me like there's some sort of intolerance built into the creation of God, this earth, an intolerance for sin that exists and that cries out constantly. Now, God obviously is aware of what's going on in Sodom. He doesn't have to go visit it and see it. So this language is probably metaphorical. Nevertheless, there is a cry that arises to God from sinful places. And we live in that same sort of society today. There's a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 12. Well, verse 11, For all flesh is corrupted before me, and the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth, among the children of men, in the presence of all the hosts of heaven, which causeth silence to reign, and all eternity is pained, and the angels are waiting the great command to reap down the earth, to gather the tares that they may be burned, and behold, the enemy is combined. So that's an interesting verse. It talks about these angels. They feel the pressure. All eternity is pained. In other words, the earth, there's a cry to heaven. And so these sins are being committed in the presence of the hosts of heaven. And angels are waiting the great command to reap down the earth. Now that is a scary verse. In other words, we live today, and I don't think anybody could disagree with this, especially those listening to this in the United States of America. We live in this fertile valley, and and God is telling us in the Doctrine and Covenants that this fertile valley is exactly like the time of Sodom. Angels are waiting this command. They're hearing the cry, and they're heading over there. And the conversation that Abraham has with these angels is, hey, if there are a certain proportion of righteous people, will you spare it? Will you spare it? Well, the answer for us today is, yes, he will. There's a certain, if there's 50 people, he'll spare it. If there's 45, 40, 30, 20, even 10, even 10 people, God would spare the entire city of Sodom. So, and, and Spencer W. Kimball spoke about this, and you can find a mention of that in the lesson manual. He said, it's the prayers of the righteous and their righteous lives and their covenant keeping, that is keeping these angels, the angels are being... They're waiting this command. They're being restrained from doing what they have a desire, obviously, to do, which is to reap down the earth, not because they hate anyone, but because they want to forward the plan of the great God, and they want to accomplish his will, and they want to see iniquity end. And it's the prayers of righteous people and the covenants of those righteous people that is stopping them. So if you want to know when the second coming is, all you have to do is watch how people who keep covenants are treated, how the world treats them, what happens to people who are making and keeping covenants with God. And when those people begin to suffer because of their covenants, then you can know the end is coming closer. That's what happened before the coming of Christ to the Nephites. They were going to be killed the night the sign was given, and they were being persecuted again before the crucifixion and the great destruction that occurred. So what can we take from all of this? What kind of choices should we make? First of all, I hope you'll have a discussion in your Sunday school class about what is the fertile valley that we're living in and what is the Sodom that we're pinching our tent towards and what is the dry and barren mountain that we could be living on and how can we depend upon the Lord in our daily lives? What choices can we make that keep us out of the valley and on the mountains and in the promised land? They're, they're separated, if you've ever visited Israel, these two regions are separated by the walk of maybe a couple of days, depending on how many people you take with you. 
it's not a huge journey. They, they would have been able to literally, like Lot and Abraham did, they would have been able to see each other. So it, it didn't take that great of a difference of choice for them to go one way or the other, which is good news because if we've made the wrong choice, we can switch. We can climb. It's an uphill climb, but we can, as, uh, as Jordan Peterson said, the, the happiness of life is in those uphill climbs. We're climbing uphill constantly. We're, bat- we're battling a wicked world. And we're never really going to reach the top where there's no more wickedness. So we have to learn to find happiness in those uphill climbs. So the answer is, obviously, come out of the fertile valley. Even if you have to give up something, even if you have to give up that guarantee of fresh water to move away from the city of Sodom, then do it. It's worth it. It's going to be worth it for the rest of eternity. And you'll receive all things. As God said, behold, he who hath eternal life is rich. That's true, not just in a spiritual sense. That's true in a literal sense. But again, it's like the, the example of the children having a marshmallow. You can either eat that marshmallow now, or you can have two marshmallows later on. Well, we can either eat the fatness of the earth now, or we can have all that God hath later on if we're willing to wait, if we're willing to give up that fertile valley, if we're giving, willing to give up the guaranteed irrigation for our crops and go and depend instead depend on him and be willing to exercise faith in the darkness, take steps in the darkness and let him light us one step at a time rather than insisting upon seeing what, how we're going to survive for the next two, three years. We're going to depend upon God. And along with that is the idea when these angels tell Abraham, they say to him, you're going to be a father and you're going to have your son, your promised son, the one, the son through whom their covenant lineage is going to be continued. You're going to be a father. And it says in that verse that Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, there are actually two ways to understand those verses. Number one is the way it appears right here in the book of Genesis, which is believing the Lord, even though it was hard to believe, Abraham was willing to do it. He made a choice to believe the revelation he'd received, and it was counted to him for righteousness. But the second way to interpret it, if you read the, the Joseph Smith translation of those three verses, and this is Genesis chapter 15, verses 9 through 12, you'll read that at this time, Abraham is given a vision of Christ. He sees, he looks forward like every prophet. He looks forward and sees the day of Christ. Every prophet in the Old Testament or in the Book of Mormon, uh, they, they see the day of Christ and he's shown exactly what Christ meant to everyone on earth. Now, he probably had some indication of this before that, but this is his own personal vision. And then he believes because he sees his own lineage continuing and he knows that Christ comes through his lineage. And then it is counted to him for righteousness. And both of these interpretations are wonderful. In one sense, sometimes we receive a prompting and we actually don't know. It seems impossible. It seems like I'm a 99-year-old man and you're telling me within a year I'm going to have another child with my 90-year-old wife. No way. It's not possible. And yet I'm willing to believe it because I know that the Spirit in the past has led me to happiness and told me the things that are true. And so therefore I'm going to believe it and it will be counted to me for righteousness. And then secondly, another interpretation is we can get close to the Savior and we can learn more about him and we can see that God is going to keep his promises by sending Jesus to us. And when we believe in him, then it will be counted to us for righteousness. Choosing that belief is the way that we exhibit righteousness in our lives. And, or, I, or another way of saying that would be, before any righteousness comes choosing that belief. It is the foundation upon which righteousness, a righteous life, is built. And I always feel like I've failed if I haven't, if in a lesson I haven't brought the topic around to Christ in some way and shown that we can be, our lives can be richly blessed and turned around and healed by believing in Christ and by choosing him. And so I think this is an appropriate place for us to end. Jesus Christ is the way, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life. Abraham showed that by his life. 
And the difference, the stark difference between Abraham and Lot is shown by the way both of them chose to live their lives, by the respective choices that they made. And so when you look out and you see your fertile valleys and your barren mountains, and you wonder, do I take up residence along this stream where there's flat farmland that I can irrigate for free? And do I accept that I'm going to be pitching my tent towards Sodom? Or do I trust in God and do I turn to the right hand? And do I move into the barren mountains and do I trust in God every day? And will I give him the chance to, number one, refine me, make me work harder, but number two, give me an ins- give me an infinite abundance of blessings like he has? Am I going to believe in Christ and let it be counted unto me for righteousness? I pray that all of us will, when it applies, make the second choice. Rather than pitching our tents towards Sodom, whatever that means in your life, and, and I encourage you maybe right now, take out your phone or take out a piece of paper, which would be better, and write down five ways that you have pitched your tent towards Sodom in the past. Five ways you've been unwilling to give up sin in your life. Some sin that you have been permissive about because it made it easier for you materially or more convenient. And then once you've made that list, you'll know exactly how to move from your fertile valley up to your barren mountain and believe in Christ. And I pray we can all do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.